I, my rookie year, I asked Mr. Jones, could I come sit in your office and listen at your business meetings? While he was talking on the phone during my lunch hours. I would do that occasionally, weeks. Wow. And he afforded me the opportunity he to do it. He said yes, he let He said yes, it. he allowed me to do it. And, and then I saw the power of leverage. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk. On Needing Dough, we share stories from pro athletes and champions discussing the financial lessons they've learned throughout their personal and professional lives. From that first life-changing paycheck to how they manage their money today. Uninterrupted CEO Maverick Carter guides us through these exclusive interviews. And man, do we have an incredible lineup for you this season. As a former NFL player myself and Columbia Business School graduate, I'm here to give you my personal perspective on how these lessons translate to you in your life. Before we start this conversation, featuring a Hall of Famer, Emmett Smith, this show is brought to you by Uninterrupted and Chase. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free, it helps other people find the show, and notifies you every time we drop a new episode. And now... I am excited to introduce the legend himself, Emmett Smith. During his time in the NFL, Emmett was known as one of the most prolific players in the league. He set all-time rushing records for rushing yards and touchdowns, two marks that may never be broken. He was one of the signature players of the Dallas Cowboys dynasty of the 1990s, winning three Super Bowls before being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2010. After his career was over, Emmett found another way to put his renowned footwork to good use. The former NFL MVP showed he can cut a rug, winning the third season of Dancing with the Stars. Today, he's a successful real estate entrepreneur developing properties nationwide. In this episode, you'll hear about how a childhood encounter changed the way he viewed financial opportunities, how wealth isn't only defined by money, and why he chose a career in real estate. All right, let's get started. Here is Maverick Carter in a conversation with the legendary Emmett Smith. Thank you guys for having me here in Dallas. Obviously, I see a lot of Cowboys jersey with, you know, the greatest Cowboy to ever play, one of the greatest players to ever play. But, I mean, maybe we should just get this out of the way. I grew up a 49ers fan. So I watched all those NFC Championship games, the back and forth, the 94, 95. And right. you guys won a bunch. They won a few. I like the word bunch versus a few. You guys definitely <laughs> you, you guys definitely got a bunch versus a few. But how long you been here in Dallas now, Emmett? How long has it been? Well, I, I was drafted by the Cowboys in 1990, and uh, I've been here ever since, except for the two years that I went to Arizona. But I re retained my, uh, my, my residence right here in Dallas. And uh, once I retired in 05, came back. So almost 25 years almost 25 years yeah. how old were you when you arrived in dallas That's i right. was actually 20 years old so you've been <clears> in dallas longer than you lived anywhere else yeah for sure wow for sure so you were 20 years old when you were, and you grew up in pensacola florida yes right? what was pensacola like well it, it it was a small town uh probably population with the if you want to call it a smaller metroplex uh collectively probably about 200 to 250. um I grew up in a housing project called Addicts Court. Is it uh, still there? It's still or has there. it been gentrified? No, it's still there. It's still there. I'm looking into it right now Got it. in terms of going in and maybe repurposing uh, the units that are there. But I uh, grew up there with my mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters. Um, most of my whole family's there. And so um, um, 
Pensacola was a great small town to grow up in. When you grew up in a small town, like everybody knows you yep. and knows your folks. Yep. So you can't get in no trouble. You can't do nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anytime you get in trouble, oh, I'm going to tell your mama, I'm going to yep. tell your daddy. And uh, that's just the way it was. And so the community itself was somewhat close-knit. Uh, but yet you had, still had the haves and the have-nots. And so you didn't know what you did not have until you saw what others had. Yep. And so when you see what others had, yes, I was inspired to, uh, to actually try to do something different. Uh, the military was in Pensacola. Uh, probably the biggest employer next to the city and so forth. But uh, it was cool. And how many nice. siblings you have? It was five of us. I have a half sister as well. But, you know, three brothers. I was the oldest boy. And I uh, had to set the tone. Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> Especially in the projects, the tone must be set early. It has to be. Has to be. You have to establish yourself very early. Well, establish yourself, know where to go and where, where to stay away from. Yep. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it, 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 the way I see it, it wasn't like it is today. I think today's kid um, has a lot more complexities than I ever had to deal with. Now, don't get me wrong, you still had the drugs, you still had the shootings and, and so forth, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is right now. Absolutely. And did you, growing up, as you said, there was haves and haves not, have-nots, and I grew up a bit the same in the neighborhood. And But as kids, your siblings, what was rich to you guys? You always, I'm sure you dreamed about being rich, but what was rich? Um, I think family time was rich to me. I mean, it was always, we learned, we grew up learning how to share with each other. I mean, everybody's competing. My brothers and I were competing for the cereal boxes. You can be <laughs> the first one down. You get about like three bowls of cereals before the next guy. If the next guy make it out, the last guy, get one bowl. Exactly. <laughs> the whole box is gone. The whole box is gone. But, exactly. but you know, it, to me, I think what was rich was more um, sitting around watching football on Monday night games sitting around watching football on Sundays, going to church on Sundays, being with your cousins. Being together was rich to me when I think back and reflect over, over that time. And, because uh, you didn't know what you did not have. Of course. Uh, and so, but having a color television, that was cool. That you had to put the, the aluminum foils on the antenna, move them around a little bit just to get the, the screen right. It was cool. Exactly. It, was, it is what it is. <laughs> Eight track takes. Exactly. You know, you felt like you had something that someone else had. But, I think if it came down to me personally to fit in, it was having a pair of Jordache jeans. Yep. You know? Exactly. You were the man. You, hey, you had something. Exactly. Friday something. night, you score a couple of touchdowns, put those jeans on. Well, this is before Friday night. <laughs> like, oh. So this is when, uh, this is like junior high school when you're trying to fit in with everyone else. You have people walking around with their Nikes and their All-Stars. All-Stars back in. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just trying to fit in. Exactly. And when did you first or even reflecting back on it do you remember the first time that you realized like well there are people who live different than us that oh yeah family time is great but there are people who are building things doing things owning yeah. stuff when did you first realize that reflecting back on it all right uh when i was 10 years old no when i was 11 years old i uh, you know i my pop warner coach charlie egger is his name i used to stay with his house on friday nights because he had to <clears throat> monitor my weight so I can play football the Makes next sense, yeah. the next So you Saturday. can make weight. Yeah, so I can make weight. And so they made sure that I ate properly and did not put a whole lot of things in my body so I could make weight the next day. Well, I should step up his house every Friday night just so he can monitor everything. First time I ever stand up a white person's house. 
go into his house. His house is 3,600 square foot. I know that today, but I didn't know that then. Of course. His house was a mansion back in my day. It was gigantic. Because it was bigger than my hood. You know, exactly. it was bigger, <laughs> bigger than my little box. So, so it was like, wow, this is, this is nice. First time seeing a home office, all of that. And, uh, and I was walking around, and I walked into his home office, and I saw this, this table. It was like the slanted board, and on top of that was some papers. I started looking at this stuff like, what is this? This look like this, this. And then I asked him the question. I said, what is this? He told me, these are blueprints and floor plans. I said, to what? House, or this is a commercial building, this is this. I said, so what do you do? He said, I own my own construction company. I build these things. And, uh, and that's what he started explaining to me and teaching me how to read four plans and blueprints at that age. Wow, 10 at, years old. At the age of 11. Wow, 11. And so I'm thinking like, wow. And I'm looking around and I'm going back home and I'm seeing what I'm living at. I'm looking at what he's living at. I'm like, <laughs> something different about this bitch. <laughs> Something's different about something this bitch. Something he's doing right. He's doing something right. Yeah. And so having that conversation, that one-on-one -on -one conversation with my coach, and this was like a every Friday night, I got a chance to be very inquisitive, asking all types of questions. And he said to me one day, he said, listen, you have great talent and your talent can take you a long way. But get your education because your education can last you a lifetime. Now, that is really how things change. But I also saw entrepreneurship for the first time. How do you manage certain things and, and, and so on? Hand, manage employees. Yep. Um, here all along, I'm thinking that this man was just my football coach. Yeah, he was this doing is, that just for fun. I yeah. thought this is what he did for a living. But now <laughs> this is his charitable component of giving back to the community because he loved football. Yep. He also loved the University of Alabama. Yep. And so... At that point, I didn't even think about the University of Alabama until he brought it up to me. And then I just started to look at Alabama football totally different. Bear Bryant was one of my favorite coaches at that time. Yep. Pat Dye Jr. became one of my favorite coaches at that time. So did uh, uh, Charlie Pell and Vince Dooley. The University of Georgia, University of Auburn, University of Alabama, and University of Florida coaches at that time. And then, but he the one got you thinking about college in a whole different way. In a whole totally different way. Because in the projects, were there, what did people do for a living there? Yeah, well, well, my father uh, was a city bus driver. So he actually got on and started driving the city bus. So he worked for the city. Uh, my mother did odd-end jobs, whether she worked at uh, a taco shop, or eventually she ended up working her way into, she worked at a nursing home. Uh, when I was like um, uh, 12, going on 13, uh, she worked at a nursing home called Magnolia Nursing Home. And so I wanted to buy these, these Jordashes. <laughs> I wanted her to buy me something like this. She said, I can't afford it. I said, why not? I said, well, she said, well, if I buy these for you, what am I gonna get your brothers and sisters? Yep. So I learned right then you had to share the resources that you actually have. Then I said, okay. She said, well, won't you get your job? I said, okay, if I get a job, can I go buy anything I want? She said, anything within reason. So I got my first job <clears throat> at Magnolia Nursing Home. With her? Mopping floors, taking out uh, the elderly people's stuff, <laughs> <laughs> making up beds, trimming the hedges, raking the yard. I, I was a what you call the modern-day lawn care guy. That's yeah. who I was. I was the utility guy. And I earned money, I saved money the whole entire summer. One of the most beautiful things I learned in that whole process was when my mom asked me to borrow some money. Wow. And I was able to give How it to How old were you at the time? I was 12, going on 13 years and old. And you had to loan your mom some money? I loaned her a couple hundred dollars. Wow. And it felt good to give it to her. Yep. And so, again, it helped me understand that, wow, that's a good feeling. 
Exactly. I earned it. I loaned it back to my mom. I never got it back. <laughs> <laughs> never got it back. Of so, course so, not. So, Moms don't pay back. They pay so, back other ways. Yeah, they pay back in other ways. Yeah. But so when people say, let me borrow something, be careful what you have. You might not get it back. Exactly. <laughs> and so so uh, that's what I did. And, and man, it felt good to do that. That's amazing. Yeah. And what was the, in the projects, the highest point that anybody probably, I always tell people the phrase that, my family always used was a good ass job. If you got a good ass job, which just meant a job with benefits right. that you could, like a city bus driver is a good ass good job. Good ass job. That was the highest that we thought you could reach. Was it the same for you too? After seeing Charlie Egger and what he did, no. What my father That's did, awesome. I knew that was a good job for what he did. But to see seeing what Charlie did, um, just took it to a whole nother level. Yep. And then as I got as I got older start being around, coming around other folks and being introduced to other people, chiropractors who own their own chiropractic clinic at the time, um, some lawyers that own their own uh, law practices at the time, and just different folk. And, um, and my, my mind's eye was open to truly what the possibilities could be like out there in the world. The one thing I knew <clears throat> is that I needed to leave. Yep. I didn't want to stay home because the people that I did see was one of my cousins who lived in Detroit, Michigan, who worked for General Motors. He would come back to Pensacola in his Bavo, styling in his car. I had a cousin that lived out here in Texas at the time and worked at TI. He would come back in his 1985 Nissan Maximum, charcoal, five speed, and I used to drive it around and wash it and everything else. So I saw success in my mind's eye that was not in my hometown yep. and I saw them leave and be and do these things so in my mind's eye I was like saying to myself I got a flight I gotta go I cannot be here yep. I don't want to stay here and then you you obviously went to Gainesville University of yeah. Florida what was that like when you arrived on campus there in that first year you obviously arriving as a star player that right. freshman year was probably the greatest freshman year of a running back I would say you and Maurice Claret, I'm a Buckeye fan, too. I understand. So you two both had the best freshman years I've ever seen. But you arrived there, and it was a whole different place than the projects right. in Pensacola. Completely different, but Gainesville was very similar. <clears throat> Gainesville was, in my opinion, uh, the University of Florida was Gainesville. Uh, we had approximately 50,000 students. The population around was probably 150 and, and almost 200, very similar to my hometown. Um, but the campus itself was his own city. Um, and getting there and getting transi transitioned into college, um, leaving Pensacola, wanting to leave, but then when I see my mom and dad drive off and leave me on campus, I felt like they just dropped me off at a prison and they just left. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was a sad moment, but it was a, it was a beautiful moment uh, because now I was really forced to grow up and, and be on my own and take on the responsibilities that I've always aspired to do, didn't know how to do it, but I had to go through it. Yep. Um, and transitioning into that team, I'll never forget my first day of practice. Man, I'm on with the second and third string units and the starting <laughs> units, and they had me the football, man, them brothers out there running around, kill them, kill them, pull them up, let me hit them. <laughs> Yeah, because you were you were player of the year. You came I, in with all. The, I came in with all this hype, all yeah. this hype and everything. They wanted to make sure that I was worthy yeah. of it. And so 
and I'm running for my dear life. <laughs> running for my life. Forget mean, get a first down. Think, you just want to survive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Forget all that. Don't think that I'm out here having a great time. I'm trying to trying to survive. <laughs> and so Louis Oliver, all of them was trying to hit me, hold them up. I mean, I heard all kinds of stuff. And all I can do is just, okay, <clears throat> get up, pat him on the back, keep on coming back. That's what I learned how to do. I mean, regardless of how hard you get hit, get up, pat him on the back, and get on back. Exactly. Don't tell him that. Don't let him know that you got hit pretty hard. Don't yeah. let him know. <laughs> exactly. Don't let, know. don't let him know it hurt. Yeah. Exactly. You get back and say, oh, man, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> how long did it take you to establish yourself with the team? Because um, obviously you broke all the records. Fastest player ever, SEC freshman of the year. Right. I think the game that really – set the tone for the college player that I was going to be was my very first start against Alabama. Um, uh, they started two freshmen that day. It was the third game of the year. We had played Jimmy Johnson in Miami, uh, lost to Miami, and Michael Irvin and Jimmy Johnson in that team. Then we came back and played Tulsa in the Gainesville. But then this game here was a pivotal moment for us. It was our first SEC opponent, which was Alabama. <clears throat> I go in the game, and um, and I've been begging to play for almost three weeks, and now they actually start me. I rushed for 200 and some odd yards, a couple wow. of touchdowns. We win the game, beat Alabama on the road. And um, and then I started the next week, go to LSU, and then I rushed for 184 yards. I remember these days like it was just yesterday. Yeah. And then we go on to the next point, and then there's another 100-yard game. They just kept piling up, and it was like, okay, we got our guy. Yep. This is our guy. This is our guy. This is our guy. Exactly. And back it's, then, obviously that was the late 80s, college football was big, but it was just starting the whole TV of it all really right. made it the biggest. That's what really made, like, TV these days, obviously. Yeah. Pumps all the money into all the sports, including right, right. NBA, NFL, soccer, basketball. And as the, as the globe gets bigger and people start watching, but back then it just started to hit its – Peak, but obviously you were playing in sold-out stadium, gigantic stadiums every week in the SEC. Not as big as Ohio State now. Not as big as Ohio State now. Ohio State's the biggest. Uh, we might be second or third in the country now. But soon I'm sure we'll top everybody else. <laughs> That's the game they play, obviously. But was there talk or did you feel like being the man on campus, like, wow, we play every week. This stadium is sold out. The, and you had obviously understood business a little bit. Like, I'm playing college football, but this is definitely a business. There are a lot of people with Gator T-shirts and 22 jerseys on. Wow, man, you know that? I mean, I'm sitting around, I'm walking around, and then I'm a freshman, and I have all these expectations. And you're starting to play, and you're starting to meet some of these expectations. And you're seeing other people walking around with E. Smith 22 on the back of their jersey. And I'm sitting here saying, wow, this is crazy. I never really th thought about someone representing me or walking around in my jersey and I saw a ton of them a ton of, of them and I'm sure everywhere you went in Gainesville not everywhere I mean I'm, I started asking questions in my own mind how are they selling all these jerseys <laughs> how much money are they making because you know you ain't getting and I'm like saying all I got is Pell Grant <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting 700 a semester all because I'm on scholarship so the whole Pell Grant was 7,000 so where's the rest of the money <laughs> Asking the question, I used to go into our student council, student uh, life office, and sit down in Tim I's office and just have a conversation with him about, man, where's all this money going? <laughs> I mean, I start thinking about it then. I'm like, whoa, what's up with all this? I mean, 
licensing and everything else. Your face is on a mug and all that. Your face is on t-shirts. You see all this stuff and you're like, I'm not going to die. Now, and then do they ever, did they ever talk to you guys about it at all? The never, of it? never have had during that time in college. We never had any discussions about compensation. It was illegal to pay players to play. You knew that, yeah. That was, the, that was it. Yep. NCAA was God. Yep. They make decisions, they make rules, and you either buy by them or you get out. Because you don't play. And so at the end of the day, what else are you to, to do? Yep. And so just take my little $1,400 Pell Grant a year money and, and keep on running for touchdowns and get my little education and then get on out of there. Of course. That's all I could do. Yep. And did you, at what point did you start saying, Man, I can't wait till I get the hell out of here so I can no, get paid. No, never, that never crossed my mind. It didn't? It never crossed my mind because my, after my junior year, I had to make a decision. And it was a tough decision. Of course. Because I was raised, you know, you finish what you start, you make a commitment, you honor your commitment and so forth. But now after three years at the University of Florida and the rotation of offensive coordinators every, all three years when I was there, learning a new oh, wow. offense every year, that's very difficult. Most people don't understand that. And then Spurrier came, your, which would have been your senior year? Which would have been my senior year. Got it. So it would have been my fourth offensive coordinator by the state. Because he took over the offense. Yes, right. yes. And so it's very difficult for any player to really mature and develop himself when they're constantly rotating offenses and schemes and you have, haven't had a chance to really grow yeah. in offense. And that's not just necessarily. It's like in business having a new boss every year. Every day. Every day. Or every year. Yeah, every year. You, and he has this you're philosophy. like, we used to do it this way last year, and the new person said, no, no, no that's no, not no. how we do it no, no more. No, no, no. That's, 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 that's not a good recipe. Yeah. And so that's what happened for three straight years at, while I was at the University of Florida. And I felt bad for, uh, even though I was having success, but my teammates and everything else, we couldn't jail. For some reason, we just could not get there. We either had a quarterback and not had the wide receivers, or we had the wide receivers and not have the quarterback. All that, all that was going on. And so, after my junior year, we played a game out in Anaheim against Washington, and got smashed. <laughs> got smashed. <laughs> so by halftime, we getting our teeth kicked in, and I never forget Whitey Jordan was the offensive coordinator my junior year. He coached Eric Dickerson right here in Dallas at SMU. He came up to me and said, listen, son. He said, I'm not putting you back in the game and getting you hurt. This he, is your junior year? This is my junior year. He said, wow. I want you to get ready to go to the next level. Wow. And he told me that. And I was like, okay. Cool. I sat down. He made it easy for you. He, somewhat easy. Because then I was left with this agonizing decision. Of course. Um, do I leave my, my boys? I mean, I came in as a freshman with being part of a class, a recruiting class, that was like in the top three in the nation. And, and it was our time. And I felt like I didn't have a chance to hang around and grow with those guys. And so Spurrier came in, saw the writing on the wall. Um, I didn't really understood, understand how I was going to fit in his system. Because at that time, all we did was run. He, was, he came in with the idea to spread it out. He right came out with a little open offense, not necessarily just to throw the ball all over the place. He was going to run it, but then I had to weigh the risk of playing my senior year and getting hurt. Yeah, of course. And we have seen that happen to college guys in bowl games. Uh, Jalen Smith for the That's Dallas it. Cowboys yep. uh, tore his knee up in a bowl game out in the Fiesta Bowl with Notre Dame, yep. and it dropped his stock. We've seen it happen in, in was a couple of guys in Miami. Yeah. 
Yep. And so these things are the things that I was trying to weigh in my mind in terms of making that decision, making the right decision for me. And so I ended up calling my mom and dad and having a conversation with them and told them what I was thinking. And uh, what was their opinion? My dad was like, son, you got to do what's best for you. And my mom was like, I'm OK if you leave. But just go back and get your college edu education. And I promised I would. Yep. And so I made a decision, called a press conference, told the University of Florida what I was going to do. And, uh, and the rest been history. For Emmett, he had to make a very tough decision at a young age. It wasn't just any risk. It would ultimately define his place in the NFL. It was a calculated risk. With the support of his parents, he was able to go forward with joining the Dallas Cowboys. We'll dive into his life as an NFL player in just a bit, but first. All right, let's get back to this conversation between Maverick and Emmett. Then you arrived here in Dallas. Yeah. Did you want to come to Dallas? You know, the Cowboys before you got here. Yeah. There's no bueno. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were the beginning of the the turn. Well, I, I I can't take credit for that, but at the end of the day, the Dallas Cowboys was always one of my favorite football team. The one. And players like Dorsett, Staubach, Pearson. Tom Landry, that whole historical uh, cowboy regime. Uh, Walter Payton was my number one guy. He was my number one guy that I patted my game somewhat after. Yep. But I've always wanted to play for the Dallas Cowboys. And so when I got drafted by the Cowboys, I was in hog heaven. I didn't even think about 1-15, didn't think about how bad we were, didn't think about none of those things. It didn't really matter to me. I was so happy just to be a Dallas Cowboy. Then when I got here, that transition uh, was a lot harder than I thought. What was the hardest part of the transition? Getting accustomed to the speed of the game. And now that I'm older and I've made the adjustment, I know why it was difficult. The why part of it was, was the speed of the game was already fast. But when you don't know what you're doing, it's even that much faster. <laughs> <laughs> you can't slow it down you, at all. You can't <laughs> slow it down at all um, and because you don't know what you're doing. You're too busy thinking. You're in your own head, therefore you get in your own way. You cannot allow your talent to be what it's really been called to be. And so you think about this linebacker, and then when they move and shift, who do I shift to next? You think about so many different things. And then when you have a coach that's making it very complicated and not really educating you in terms of what you really need to do or how to do it, I had to have some help. And I turned to Tommy Ag and Daryl Johnston. They helped break that playbook down for me. And the playbook was about this thick. And so they told me, you need to know this, this, and this, and everything else is noise. I said, okay. I started learning this, this, and this, and let the noise drop. I was able to pick things up. And once I got it, then, it, then I was able to put all the other pieces of the puzzle together uh, in terms of watching the safeties yo-yoing down and what's about to happen in the secondary and what the, the D-line is about to do, all the different stunts and everything. But getting the fundamentals down and the terminology down was part of the transitioning process that I think every player must go through. But once I got through that, then the game itself slowed down. And then I was able to play. That's amazing. And you know, the thing people disregard when it comes to athletes is a bit of the reason we created this show, Needing Dough, is like there's that transition is going on, which is hard. As you said, that playbook is this thick. That's 
I mean, you're basically going to, a, to getting a graduate degree in football once you leave Florida and now come to the NFL. But you're also transitioning to living in a whole nother city. Mm -hmm. So you're figuring your way around. Right. You know, there's no GPS then, so you're going to figure those <laughs> things out. Where do I live? What, what should I eat? What time do I got to leave my house to get to practice? And then the, the third one is now I get paid for my services. Exactly. So you have all three of those transitions trying to mesh them together. Was that, was that hard, too, like dealing with the money, the playing? How did all that come together? You know, um, obviously driving from Florida to Dallas, map questing your way around and having your map, understanding how to get there and in, in the, in the time it takes, that part I can deal, deal with. Uh, getting here and uh, making the adjustments that I just described in terms of learning the plays, and not to mention getting accustomed to being around grown men that are competing for your job. Yep. And you're competing for their job. Yep. And everybody's getting paid. Some guys have years of experience on you. You've seen them on television. You know they're, they're beasts <laughs> and monsters. Exactly. So how in the world do you get on the football field and compete with these beasts and monsters? How, do you, how are you able to go and ask for help from a guy that you're competing for with his job? And do you have the courage to do that? And those are things that, those are just psychological adjustments that you have to make, including the freaking mind games that have been played and the injuries that, that you go through, all of these different things. Then, as you mentioned, where do I live? Do I buy a house or do I rent an apartment? Yep. Do I buy, what type of car do I buy? Yep. Do I want to treat myself to something nice or do I want to buy something that's, that's, that's manageable? All those things are part of the process. Who do I hire to manage my money? Yep. Let alone, how, how do I find an attorney that I need to have? Exactly. Someone that has my best interests at heart. Yep. I mean, you have to entrust a lot of people that you don't even know. Yep. There was no internet. There was no researching. It was cold calling, technically, and going by word of mouth and seeing what someone else has done before you. And so going through that whole process and trying to develop this discernment about the people that you want to work with and the people that you're entrusting to manage your millions. Um, and who do you hire from a marketing perspective? All of it, yeah. All of that. Never had to do that, never had to think about it. Uh, how much is my value and all that. I never thought about it. All I did was get on that football field and run, hey. go to class on Monday through Friday, get on the field and run, go to class on Monday through Friday, work out. And that was it. But now, I have to work out, have to figure out these other things. Now I'm getting fan mail. Now I'm trying to be a, a good professional athlete. And I got fan mail coming in. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm sitting at the dinner at my <laughs> apartment complex opening up letters and reading these letters and signing these autographs and sending them back on these. Before you know it, I'm playing with the boys now. I'm on the, on the starting lineup and everything else six weeks in. Letters go from 25 to 100, from 100 to 500, from 500 to 1,000, from 1,000 to 4,000 pieces a week. And you sitting back saying, man, I can't respond I to can't all this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that good Samaritan you were went out yeah, the window. You can't keep up yeah, with all I that. I mean, you, have, you go in with all good intentions, but then you start to realize this is very costly. Of course. Time. Time. Time management. How do you manage that time? Time management. Because the University of Florida is pretty regimented. 
very now much Now with the NFL, it's not. Yeah, you have to learn how to manage your own time. And, and when they, and then tell me about when you first realized when you got with the Dallas Cowboys, now you're in the NFL that I'm not just playing football anymore. This is now a job. This right. is what I got to do as a job. Really? What was that like? And when did you realize, what was the first moment where you got slapped in the face like, oh shit, you know, high school, <laughs> Florida, I'm just playing football, right, having right. fun. Mm. It's a business, but it's fun. NFL is like, no, son, this is a job. Well, <clears throat> my very first contract, um, negotiating that deal. <laughs> <clears throat> and at that time in 1990, many people may not realize this, but at that time, when your contract was actually up, you became a free agent. So you could sign a three-year deal, and after your three years was up, you could become a free agent. Well, I signed the actual four-year deal that converted to a three-year deal once I started my very first game. I started the second game of the season against the Washington Redskins. And so my contract reverted from a four-year deal down to a three-year deal. Well, in the meantime, those three years that went by, the NFL and the PA was negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. And that collective bargaining agreement uh, stipulated that only time you can become a free agent was after four years. Oh, wow. A rookie had to play four full years. Four four years. But I only had three. So they created this window of what they call restricted free agency. Yes. And restricted free agency meant that after my contract was up, although the Cowboys owned my rights, they have the right of first refusal. But I had 30 days to negotiate with all 31 other teams. And if I landed a contract with, all, with one of the 31 teams, then the Cowboys had a right of first refusal. They could match it. Right, they could match it. So after 30 days, all bets was off. My contract, my rights reverted back to the Cowboys. So for all of y'all who haven't figured it out, I lost leverage. Yeah, because nobody's going to offer you a deal because they know the Cowboys are going to match. Well, why not mess up their salary cap? Why mess exactly? I mean, if you all that, I mean, you you rookie of the year, you didn't you you became an All Pro in your second year, you led the league in rushing. In your second year, you led the league in rushing. Your third year, you, you're all pro and you win the Super Bowl after your third year. Yep. I mean, what's the hold up? I mean, did Is this I, the first time you learned that's what like the word Zika. leverage meant? That's, I learned what leverage meant. I also learned what, uh, what business is all about. Yeah. I was really educated in that because you come in under the notion that I have to prove myself in order to earn the capital that I deserve. Yep. Well, for three years, I thought I did that. It's, it's the stats are there, the yards are there, the touch, everything. The, the, the resume is there. You even had a Super Bowl by then. The resume is there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when those 31 teams did not offer me a contract, I was flabbergasted. I'm I was like, like, what the hell? What? Exactly. I'm like, man, I, I thought I did. You asked me to do something. I do it. <laughs> what else you want me to do? What else you want me to do? Yeah. And so when I missed those first two games. Who explained they, to you? the leverage that you had lost then? Well, I knew it. By that time, I was learning. I was learning and I was on a quick curve. And so uh, my agent and I was- How old were you at this time? Probably 23, going on 24. That's that's amazing that you have to learn that level of business at that age. Most people in normal business, executives, entrepreneurs, don't learn that until they're much older. You have to figure that out at 23. At 23. So- when you're looking at players, these are young men and women negotiating contracts and trusting someone to negotiate the right contract for them. 
whether it's performance contract or a marketing contract, either way it goes, you're entrusting someone to do that on your behalf. Now, you don't know if you got the right person. Everybody don't know where all the bones are buried. Everybody is not so strategic to the point where they know what's on book counts under cap and what's off book that doesn't count. People don't know all these th different things and the different revenue generators that you can tap into, not only to help the owner, but also help yourself. And did you learn it was a business because it's like, man, I've put this work in for the Cowboys. So I thought they would just pay me and then we all be happy and we're buddy buddy. Kumbaya. And, and kumbaya. <laughs> I, I walk in and say, Wakanda hey. forever, baby. I'm like, like, what's going on? I'm like, <laughs> like, what's going on? It's us. We, you it's know, just we, us. I and mean, you realize they were like, no. Nah. I thought you liked me. I mean, like, come on. I mean, come on. I mean, did I not do what you asked me to do? Why am I sitting there watching my teammates play without me? Exactly. I don't deserve this. Yeah. That's when you start thinking. It's like. And, and, and you can, it can easily make you bitter because you entrusted that they were going to do the right thing. Well, I got signed, came on in, and things got turned around, and we went right back to the Super Bowl. Yep. And so, yes, you learn right then and there it is a business, a business. and you learn how to treat it like a business. Also, Did that forever change your thinking about the NFL? Completely, completely. And... Another thing that changed my perspective on it is when you talked about leverage a little bit ago, uh, watching my owner, who's a brilliant, brilliant man. Of course. That whole family is awesome. Charlotte, Stephen, and Jerry Jr., and Mrs. Jones, they, they are phenomenal people. But I learned so much by just being around them and being with Mr. Jones. I, my rookie year, I asked Mr. Jones, could I come sit in your office and listen at your business meetings? while he was talking on the phone during my lunch hours. I would do that occasionally, weeks. Wow. And he afforded me the opportunity he to do it. He said yes, he let He said do yes, it. he allowed me to do it. I'd sit there and listen to him talk to Paul Taglebu and negotiate some things with the National Football League. I sat there and listened to him negotiate some deals, some sponsorship deals with Home Depot and some other folks that were sponsors at that time. And, and then I saw the power of leverage, how he took care how he leveraged the, the, the actual star of the team in terms of the brand um, in Austin. We had practice one day, one Friday night. Afterwards, we get done. We load up on the bus. We ride over to this complex, this multifamily apartment complex, probably 300, 400 units. And we're having a cookout and a party there and everything else. You got sponsors all around. You even got people coming in, looking at the apartments and everything else. And all the players are there rubbing elbows with everybody. And I said, wow. I said, look at this. <laughs> we're here. Why are we here? Yeah, what are we, what are we doing? Us? Why are we here? Yeah. We're here entertaining. Yeah. We're here entertaining. And he's here cutting deals. Of course. He's cutting deals. He's renting out these apartments. <laughs> <laughs> and none of this money's coming back to my pocket. No, What's going on? Exactly. I'm like, where's the revenue sharing at? Exactly. I'm, like, I'm like, come on. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, yes. That's why I call him the king of leverage. Yep, exactly. He, yeah. he knows how to do it. And in the locker room, did you guys have conversations like this about money, about finances, about investing in those days? We did. We, we, we talked. Uh, even, even some of my uh, teammates and I, uh, uh, I tried <laughs> my rookie year, I saw four corners of just raw land. And it was on 635 in MacArthur Boulevard. 
and this is 1990, and I'm driving into Valley Ranch, and I'm coming out of Valley Ranch all the time. And I'm looking around, and you can stand at 635 and look all the way to Beltline Road, and stand at 635 and look over to 114 at that time, and see the interstates. So there was really nothing in between it that would block your view. And I'm sitting here saying to myself, and I'm only 10, 15 minutes from the airport. I'm saying, man, this place is going to be something one day. So I went to some of my teammates and I said, hey guys, when we parlay our money together, let's go buy this land. And, and this is before I actually got my first signing bonus. So when I got my signing bonus, I'm sitting here thinking a million dollars is a million dollars. It's really not. It's really six forty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Before it even touched you. It even touch me. Uncle Sam get his. Who the, the heck top. is Fika? Why Fika stealing from me? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I go through that whole process, and they're like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. Let's do that. Then by the time it come to raising, to getting his money, ain't nobody. <laughs> the crickets out chirping. Nobody's around. I can't put all my money in one basket, of course. so I never did. But I, I, I learned a very valuable lesson. Of course, I didn't know it. I did not know the, I did not have the ability or the understanding or the wherewithal how real estate actually worked, how I need to put in a LOI, yep. tile property for a certain period of time the due diligence phase that I need to go through in terms of uh, phase ones and all those kind of things. And not only that, but then having renderings and all those kind of things and who's, who's the right tenants, entitlements, all of that. Didn't know, didn't have a clue. But I saw something and I knew it was valuable. I just did not know how to extract the value out of it at of that time. And so when they said no, I said no. A couple of years later, Things popping up all around. That hard corner right now is probably worth over probably $50 million worth of cash flow. Wow. And it's probably valued at a couple, couple hundred, hundred million dollars. When choosing a career in sports, it's not just about the game. Your lifestyle gets affected. You have to learn to manage your money, your time, figure out where to reside, and who to call on for advice. In Emmett's time, the internet wasn't as accessible as it is today. He had to learn how to make decisions for himself by trusting his intuition and asking for help. We talk about mentorship a lot on this podcast. And while I consider myself a mentor, I give more credit to the people in my life who mentor me. People always ask me, Hawk, how did you find the mentors that give you advice today? Well, when I was a player in the NFL, I understood the opportunity I had to take advantage before it all came crashing down. And one thing that was always important to me was positioning myself for when I was done with sport, but I didn't know how to do it. So what I would do was I would read articles and use Google and the internet just to find people that I admired that were doing something incredible and breaking the mold of the limitations other people put on their life. I would send them a note, send them an email, maybe call, or even a signed jersey. Most times, they thought it was cool that an NFL wide receiver was hitting them up, so that would actually help build the relationship with them. But even if you're not a pro football player, people who have had success love sharing their wisdom and experience. So my advice to you would to be to find people around you that you can trust, that have your best interests at heart, or have experience, because those are things that can't be learned from a book. All right, let's get back to this wisdom-filled conversation with Emmett Smith. And you, obviously, 
have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Long but time. you had an amazing football career too. People, I mean, to be doing both at the same time is amazing. I mean, your career, it went longer than anyone ever expected because you're a running back, right? right we right. see it today. Running right. backs are going through that today. But you had an incredible career, broke all the records, played for a very long time. When did you actually start thinking about what am I going to do when I'm done and how do I become more than a football player? That happened probably in 96, um, 96, 97. Um, I started, uh, I met Roger Starback when I got here in 90, started uh, getting to know Roger. Uh, in, in fact, I invested in an office building that sat right behind our, our practice facility in Valley Ranch. Uh, built the office building along with some other folk. Uh, and I was just a passive investor in it. It was an office building there, and we used the Starback company to do the lease up. And so going through that process with them and, and getting money out and getting my returns and, and, and making some money on the transaction, um, I was like, yeah, this is cool. I actually did something now in the real estate space that, that, that's worthy to say, yes, I built that building. Um, but then going through that whole process with him and then meeting other folks, uh, a former teammate of mine who tore his knee up his rookie, my rookie year, and before I got back, he was already gone. Wow. But we reconnected like in 97 through my wife uh, and, and his wife. Oh, yeah, you're talking about Steve. I actually know Steve. You know Steve Johnson? Uh, after the I'll tell you a funny story Okay, so I reconnected with him. And so with him, I'm riding around up in Bristol, Tennessee, and we're talking real estate language, and he's showing me all the things that he's doing. And, and you obviously already had an interest in real estate. Oh, I had an interest, big time, because yeah. uh, I want to cash flow myself. Yeah. And so he breaks it down, 43,560. That's the first time I ever heard of 43,560, and it wasn't the yardage that I was rushing for. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't talking about no, football. It's the square footage in an acre, yeah. and how they breaking that thing down, and how they translate that into an actual cost per square foot. And and we just started having a dialogue, and I just started getting more educated, come back, start doing my own research, start asking more questions around different folks, and just start looking at things from a different perspective. I invested into a couple of different funds that the Starbucks company actually had, start getting my yield back, and I start asking questions. Follow the money. Where's the money going? Who's putting it together? How much we're getting? How much are they getting? And to my surprise, uh, you know, understanding how promotes work and, and how uh, uh, the, the, the fees actually work in certain transactions, uh, along with the cash flow and the financing aspect of all of those things. Uh, and then learning how to put deals like that together. Yep. Uh, I was like, yeah, I think I know what I want to do. And back, back to the, the leverage point, because as you said, you know, amongst sports owners, in my lifetime, I think in the history, Jerry is the greatest we've seen as far as leverage for sure. I mean, you know, the Cowboys are still the biggest brand in the NFL and haven't won since you, since you left, right? Since you stopped playing. Been a really long they time. They winning. They win. They just win in they a different area. They can't win the Super Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They win in a different place. Yeah. But for you as Emmett Smith, now the real estate developer, the author, the entrepreneur, the entertainer. How do you use and what does the leverage of being a cowboy mean? Now you understand you can pull some levers, right? Right. right. 
Well, watching Roger, Roger watching Magic Johnson, um, and understanding that I do have a brand, and my brand, um, I ain't going to say it's a cowboy brand, but when I think about great brands and what they stand for, the one thing I have learned is when you're a performer, does your brand perform? Is your brand consistent? Is your brand um, a winner? Does it, has, does it have all the attributes that a company like J.P. Morgan Chase would love to be associated with? And those attributes, do they correlate with what J.P. Morgan Chase's mission really is? Understanding that, and how does that play in business? How does that play in the real estate space? Yes, most athletes can get on the phone and call somebody and get into a room and, and have a dialogue. Can you close the deal? And not only close the deal, but can you execute against the deal? Because at the end of the day, it's like anything else in the football world. Execution, execution, execution. If you can execute like the New England Patriots on a consistent basis, you're going to win and be in almost nine Super Bowls because you got a quarterback like Tom Brady. Execution is extremely important in any business. And the one thing I've also learned is we're all in the service business, Maverick. We're all in the service business. People may not think about it that way. And the reason why I say we're in the service business, because every time I get up and every time I go to work, I'm servicing my family. Every time I have a client that gives me an opportunity to work with them and to earn the right to do business with them, my job is to service and make sure that I provide them with a quality product. If it's in the construction space, it's on time and under budget. If it's in the tenant rep space, it's finding the right location so that you can be successful. If it's in, in uh, my own development uh, side, what we do is doing all the things that we need to do to build a quality product and leave the community in a better place than, when, than, than we found it. All of that is service. J.P. Morgan Chase is servicing every client that wants that, that, that Chase card and have the banking accounts and all those kind of things. It's service. It's the quality of service. It's the experience. Even when I play football, if you pay Jerry $45 to go park at AT&T Stadium, walk into that stadium and give up a $450 ticket, <laughs> walk up the stairs and sit wherever you're going to sit, and then order a $25 hot dog, and get a $35 Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Whatever you do, you come to the stadium to see quality football. You don't come to see 1-15. No. That's not what you're coming to see. And as a player, I don't want you to see 1-15. I want you to walk in there with an experience and say, man, i just seen the best running back i ever seen in my life. Yep. That was my job. So I've been servicing a whole lot of things. And even on Dance with the Stars, yep. I want you to feel like you can get it on that television and dance with me and Cheryl while we're out on that dance floor because I want to make it look so simple, so easy, that it want to invite you into the room. Exactly. And so service is who we are. It's what we do. Sharing beyond that is what we do as well. And, and now that you obviously, you have a wealth of knowledge. I mean, I can sit here and talk with you for hours, but do you have young players, whether it be Cowboys or non-Cowboys or athletes, coming to you for advice and information? That's, I do. Because they're very young, right? That's the thing about, I always talk about athletes. They have to make and understand this stuff at a young age, you had yeah. to learn leverage at 23 years old. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, and 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 I, I welcome it. I, I welcome it. Uh, any player that reaches out, and the one thing I learned from Jordan is I don't necessarily reach out to other players. Um, I learned this from Michael Jordan. Uh, I called him one day in the late 90s, and I said, Mike, I want to talk, sit down and talk business with you. He said, Okay. 
He said, meet me in San Francisco. I'm going to be in San Francisco on this date. Jump on the plane, hopped up there, flew up there, sat down. We met at, at the Four Seasons. We sat down in, in the lobby area. He had a, he had, what did he have? He had Grand Marier. <laughs> I remember it. I ordered Grand Marier too. <laughs> and so we sat there and we talked about all types of business. And at the end, my question was to Mike. I said, Mike, why don't many of us do this? How can we don't sit down and have a conversation with each other like this or parlay our resources together and go do conduct business at the highest level like this? He said, well, E, it's like this. He said, what did you do? He said, you picked up the phone and you called me. You wanted to have some information. You told me you wanted something from me. I didn't have to call you and offer you nothing. If you didn't call, we would have never had this meeting. He said, but all because you called, I wanted to give it. I don't want to impart wisdom upon somebody that don't want to receive it. You have to have fertile ground in order to allow these seeds to be planted. And you have to have a level of humility in order to seek information in areas that you're aspiring to get to. That information resides in people and places. And you have to be willing to go there to do it. But you have to humble yourself in order to get in front of them to allow them to do that. When I asked Jerry, can I come sit in his office? Humbling myself to learn what I did not know. The same thing has to take place in every arena. If you show somebody that you're willing to meet them halfway, they'll probably meet you halfway nine yeah, times out of 10. I agree. And you, you, know, you talk about fertile ground, you also committed to giving back. Tell, tell me a bit about the Pat and Emmett Smith well, charity. Well, Pat and Smith charity was birthed out of the experience of that I shared with you with Charlie Egger, another person that she experienced sim something similar, uh, a lady by the name of Kay Sykes out of Virginia. And so we combined our heart's desire, and that is to help young men and women, young people, uh, and create these experiences. Because I believe it's, it's the experiences of taking a person out of their projects or out of their four corner block and placing them in a place like Charlie Edgar placed me into. Getting able to see that this is possible instead of believe, sitting through the fence wondering, can I really reach that over there? I gotta stand on the other side of Trinity and see Dallas. There's no way for me to actually go downtown Dallas. But if I can take you to a place and teach you how to fish, you can fish for a lifetime. But if I just take you to that place and drop you off, you might not eat at all. But taking people and exposing them to different types of things, different types of businesses, so they can see how they fit in the world is what we truly believe. We also believe to whom much is given, much is required. So it's not just our responsibility. This responsibility falls on every person on this planet to support your community, no matter if it's black, white, Hispanic, People need help, and if you have the ability to do that, you should do it. It is your human responsibility to mankind to help another person in need. Got it. Quick, couple of quick ones before we get out here. A little fun stuff. Is it? You've been playing. You got drafted in 1990, mm -hmm. so you've been making money a long time. Is it hard for you to splurge on yourself still? Or are you okay with it? Now? You know, I'm okay with it. Because I read this story about you buying the SL, by the way. With the yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a stupid, stupid <laughs> buy. <laughs> <laughs> but you did teach that guy a lesson. Yeah, yeah. It was a stupid, it was a stupid buy. I mean, in 1990, like I said, you either buy you want to buy something to say, okay, I'm a spurge on myself because I earned the right to get here and I want me a nice ride. But then when I bought the ride, I was living in an apartment complex. 
and I'm parking the car under a shed. It's not even in a garage. I got a 300 SL sitting in a parking garage under a shed, exposed to the weather. And I live in a doggone apartment complex. I'm paying $700 a month. The car costs $120,000. That's a townhome. Of course. With exactly. a parking garage. Exactly. <laughs> what, what's the one thing that you always, you, you can't help it if it's there, you're like, I, I'm buying this for myself all the time. Nothing. 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 You, you have to control a the A bag diesel. of Cheetos. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> a bag of Cheetos. I'm serious. I mean, it's either that or something like that. I mean, because at the end of the day, I've come to realize that, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff that we actually have, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something to make you feel good. Yeah. And if I got to buy stuff to make me feel good, then it's the wrong thing for me. For me, it's like I get my joy out of watching my family celebrate birthdays and Christmas and holidays and being around family. Like I, I go back to my roots, back to my brothers and sisters, being around my cousins, being around folks. It's all my, I love family reunions when they're not asking me for autographs and pictures. <laughs> because they treat you differently. Of course. I mean, I'm no longer scoey, I'm Emmett now. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, when you start calling me Emmett, yeah. you know, it's like you want to be that kid around people who truly know you. Yep. And that's the part that I long for all the time. And growing up in the projects in Pensacola, you went to Gainesville, you went, now spent your rest of the majority of your life in Dallas. But I'm sure there's something about being in the projects in Pensacola, like a broke habit that you still got. Is there one that you still, there's something that you just stops you from doing that or that because you remember being that kid in the right. projects? Well, I'm still trying to break that old slang. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going anywhere. Exactly. But, but, you know, I think the thing that I have taken with me from the projects is grits and eggs. Yep. I, I still love my grits and eggs and bacon. <laughs> and, and and I won't leave that alone. My kid, I mean, I just... I just love breakfast food. Yeah. Because I we used to eat breakfast food sometimes twice a day. At dinner, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so fish and grits, I'm down for that too. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me, you go find that I like some of the simplest things in life. Yep. Uh, I am not that overly, I'm not that complicated. Yep. I am pretty simple. Got it. And you, last thing before I let you, you, it's amazing. You are one of the very few people in this world who are built who have built one amazing career at something and now building a second amazing career football player maybe the greatest football player definitely the greatest running back there play now you're building an incredible real estate holdings company when it's all said and done what do you want to be known for first Emmett the running back or Emmett the real estate developer the neither one neither uh, one Emmett the dad nice Emmett the dad that that uh, imparted his wisdom as much as he could to his kids and raise his kids to be productive citizens. At the end of the day, I look at parenting, and now that I am a father of, of five, I look at that and say, parenting is delayed gratification. Because you never know what your kids are going to do when they get of your age. Yep. And so to be able to watch, and hopefully God bless me to be on this planet long enough to see them not only get married, but have kids and have their own careers and so forth, but to watch how things turn out. Yep. And I pray that they turn out well for all of my kids, including your kids too as well. I don't wish nobody else's kids are ill, but I want my kids to be pretty good too. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, well, you're an amazing man. I'm sure they'll be great with a dad like you.
And that's all for this episode of Meeting Bill, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Come back next week to dive into another incredible conversation. But until then, subscribe to the podcast and submit a review wherever you listen to your shows. All right, much appreciation to our partners for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, T.D. St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.